Gracious Father, we want to bow and remember and remind ourselves once again that we come before the Almighty God, heaven, uh, creator of heaven and earth, of everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, powers, authorities, everything has been created by your hand for your glory. And so this evening we simply want to pause and humble ourselves before you. You have given us yet another week of life. Our hearts are beating in our chests this evening. That you have enabled us and drawn us to once again, once again gather in worship of your mighty and awesome name. We come also empty-handed, acknowledging that we desperately need your grace and your spirit tonight to take truth that without the power of your spirit would lie lifeless on the floor of our hearts. And so we ask that you would just continue your work of humbling and also if in need be convicting and crushing, but also giving life and encouragement and hope and renewing our desire and our passion for you and for your kingdom and for, for Jesus Christ. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant me the words to speak, that you would help me to navigate that difficult tightrope between being overly firm and not sensitive enough or too sensitive and not firm enough. I just pray, Lord God, that you would speak and my brothers and sisters would be affirmed by your spirit as I speak, that these are indeed the words of God. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to take a single verse tonight. And what I want to do with it is something maybe a little bit different than we're normally used to. I want to use it as a kind of a lens. And that verse, of course, is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. Now, we've looked at the passage as a whole um, not too long ago, but I want to kind of take this verse, and I believe it, I'm not going to take it out of context because he's speaking of one of the ways, not one of the ways, but the way in which God works in the world in which we live. And I want to take this verse and use it as kind of a lens, and I'd like to look at three panoramic views of the scripture through this lens of chapter 1, verse 19. One panoramic view is to look at the Old Testament and then to switch that lens and look at Jesus and then to switch that lens again and and look at the book of Acts. Those are kind of the three panoramic views that I want to look at through this single verse found here in Paul in 1 Corinthians, in which he writes this, and he cites the Old Testament, and I believe the verse will be behind me, so you don't have to keep flipping back there. He says this, For it is written, and he's now quoting the Lord God Almighty, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. I believe in light of the context that Paul is not saying that this is something or a way in which God works some of the time, but rather God works in history in a way that confounds and breaks out of the boxes of human convention, thought, philosophy, and man-made doctrines and theologies. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. And he goes on to talk about the fact that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise, the lowly things to confound the things that are strong, and the things that are not to, to undo the things that are. As if God works in such a way as to break out of human boxes. And I believe that is something true about God, is that he will not be confined or caged by human thinking or by conventions of thought. He is a box breaker. That's what God is. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. 
In other words, what I'm going to submit to you is that in some sense, God is predictably unpredictable. Now, let me tell you what I don't mean by that. There is a sense in which God is entirely and always predictable, and that is he is always true to his nature. He is immutably faithful. He is unchangeably loving, always truthful, always wise, always all-powerful. Those things will never change, and in that sense, God is predictable. Our, Our faith hinges on the fact that God will not be good today and evil tomorrow. So in that sense, God is predictable. We, our faith hangs on the fact that his character stays the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But there is another sense in which the God, Almighty God, in which he gauges the, engages the world in which we live, he engages it in such a way as to upset human pretension and to humble human thoughts and categories and boxes. And that is my aim tonight, is to show you that indeed God destroys the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligence, uh, intelligent he will frustrate. That is, he breaks through boxes and conventions. That is the verse. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He is predictably unpredictable. So let's take this lens, this verse here, and let's just kind of walk through the Old Testament. Now I'm going to kind of call upon your understanding of the Old Testament if you haven't read the Old Testament before, you just need to read it. It's, first of all, it's fun reading, but getting these stories in, in your mind about what God has done in ages past and through great men. From the very beginning, the opening book of the Bible, we find that God does things that are unpredictable, that are unthinkable. For example, uh, the Lord comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, and he says to him, guess what? Your 90-year-old wife is going to have a, a kid To which both Abraham laughs, and in the next chapter, she laughs because it's utterly absurd. That doesn't happen. It's outside the realm of human experience for a 90-year-old woman to conceive and give birth to a child, but nevertheless, God does it. He does the unthinkable. He does the unpredictable. That's the way God chose to show his greatness to Abraham. I can do what you don't think I can do. Then you also take another strand of the Old Testament in which... In ancient times, it was, uh, it was convention to give the birthright to the firstborn son. And God seems to over and over again, not just in one instance, but over and over again, choose the second or thirdborn son. As if God is saying, well, I'm not doing it your way. I'm doing it my way. So you have Abraham, whose firstborn son is Ishmael. But the blessing and the birthright go to Isaac. And Isaac's firstborn son is Esau. But it's Jacob that receives the blessing and the birthright. And Jacob has 12 sons. It's, and it's not the oldest one that receives the blessing of the Messianic line. It's one of the younger sons. When it comes to the time of David, it's not the older son that receives kingship. It's David, one of the littlest of the kids that receive it. As if God again is saying, I'm not living by your conventions and traditions. I'm in charge of who's blessed and who's not blessed. You play by my rules, not by your rules. Again, He is notoriously unpredictable. Then you have the sons of Jacob who take, and you know the story, they take Joseph and they throw him in a pit and then later sell him as a slave, leaving him basically for dead. And then in a demonstration of divine irony, totally unpredictable, God takes the slave, youngest, one of the youngest of Jacob, and he makes them as you well know, second in command of Pharaoh, and becomes the deliverer not only of his evil brothers and the entire nation of Israel, or the family of Israel, but also the empire of Egypt. 
Who would have ever thought that a, a boy thrown in a pit would become second to Pharaoh? Again, I think that was unpredictable. And you see it in the responses of the father and the brothers, like, there is no way that happened. But it did happen. And God decided that he was going to bring his people of, people of Israel, which is now a mighty nation, in the iron grip of Pharaoh. How does he deliver his people? Current convention, you would send panzer tanks and all kinds of troops to go liberate the people of Israel, but he sends a single man named Moses, who, lest we forget, was a shepherd. If I was in Egypt as an Israelite living at the time, working the mud pits and trying to build these bricks, slaving away, and I saw what the Lord sent, namely a shepherd named Moses, I would have said, you have to be kidding. A shepherd with a staff is going to deliver us, and yet God basically is saying, listen, I do it in ways you don't expect, because I want to show that I exercise the sovereign freedom, to show that I am God and and no one can tell me what to do. Then you have the people of Israel, of course, and you know the story as well. They are pressed between the Red Sea and the, the armies of Pharaoh. And, and there are no conventions, at least human conventions of escape. There, there are no bridges. There are no tunnels, no trains, no air, air lifts to take them across. And they panic as if it's outside God's control. And, and that shepherd with the staff, empowered by the power of God, opens up the sea. The unpredictable takes place, the unthinkable, and they walk through on dry land. And then when they get into the desert and they're wandering, there is no, there are no Luckies or Rayleys or any of the other stores. No Circle K's, not even a 7-Eleven out in the desert. There's nothing, not even plants I've been there to, to live off of. No conventional means of feeding yourself. God does the unthinkable and drops man out of heaven and he opens up a turret of, of water out of rocks. And then God challenges um, Joshua to take the people into the promised land and, and knock down one of the fortified cities at the, at the base of the Judean hills, named, you know what it is, Jericho. God does the unthinkable. He does, and he strategizes, and he commands his people to do something you would never find in a West Point manual, ever. This is what I want you to do, Joshua. Line up the band strike up the band, and play Ring Around the Rosie. And I, I will bring down the walls. Again, if you were in that that little group, you would have said, you've got to be kidding. But they did it. God's power moved. And, And you can go right on down the line of Old Testament history and see that God does the unthinkable. He goes outside the box, breaks conventions. I mean, you have Second Chronicles chapter 20 where we find that a, a mighty army, a vast army is what it says, is, is coming from Edom against Israel. And the Lord instructs Jehoshaphat, one of the Israelite kings, he says, you go out there, you're not going to fight this battle. And a choir starts singing and they are destroyed, destroyed by a choir. So you take, I see this and, and I hear the words of Isaiah where God says in, in chapter 46, I will do all that I please. Or Isaiah 55, where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways, your conventional ways of thinking and doing things are not my ways. They're different. And then, of course, this verse here in Paul. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. As if God delights in showing us that he is God and we are not. And he does. That's the way God works, has worked in the Old Testament. Breaking these conventions and showing that he is not bound by them. And humbling human pretension in the process. So that God's people realize, listen, if God says he can do it, he can do it. I don't care how impossible it seems, but he can do it. So let's now switch the, and you could, like I said, go on and on in the Old Testament. But you can, let's switch the lens now to Jesus, who's like the epitome of unpredictable redemption. That's the whole context of this chapter in which he's arguing that the way in which God saved the world, namely through a crucified Messiah, was foolishness. In fact, he goes so far as to say that, verse 8 of chapter 2, none of the rulers of this age understood it, or had they, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They just couldn't do it. The way in which the Messiah came defied their categories. Which tells me And I believe this is corroborated at the very end of Romans. Paul makes this amazing little statement. I'm not going to say it now, but you can read it for yourself. The biblical prophecy, because keep in mind, the most theologically astute and biblically trained sages of the Hebrew Scriptures didn't get how God was going to save the world through a crucified Messiah. They couldn't get it. Though they studied the prophecies, which again tells me, the prophecies of the Old Testament are sufficiently clear enough to both give hope and also to be fulfilled, but are sufficiently ambiguous enough to shroud what God was going to do in enough mystery that he could still be God and do it in his own way and crush human wisdom. Sufficiently clear, but sufficiently ambiguous so that God could be God and do it in a way that they would never expect, requiring his people to have fresh faith and humble faith to accept the way God is doing it and not forcing God into a box or confining him to their expectations. And think about it, the entire life of Jesus is insanely unpredictable. The sovereign king of the entire universe, which is what Jesus is, is born not into silk sheets, but into a stall. That his first attendants to his birth were not Jewish nobility, but a ragtag group of shepherds and some foreigners that the Jewish people would have considered unclean. That the career of choice of the sovereign king of the universe was a carpenter and not the work of a king. Or that his cabinet of 12 that he would choose to launch his mission that would envelop the globe would consist of what the book of Acts calls ignorant and uneducated men. Never would have thought those would have been his choices. And then no one, absolutely no one, would have ever got the fact God Almighty would crush the Son, bloodied and crucified, naked on a cross for the sins of his people. No one could get that. Because God cannot be confined by human categories or man-made theology or man-made doctrines. He breaks the mold. He breaks boxes 
God is far bigger than our human conceptions can ever go. And God delights to exercise his sovereign freedom just to show us how big he is and how small we are. He's done it in, repeatedly through the Old Testament. He does it uniquely in the cross of Jesus, blows it all away. But now let's take that lens of this verse. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Again, the voice of God in Isaiah, I will do all that I please. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. Let's take this and let's now rotate it to the book of Acts. I hope you kind of see where I'm going. If God in the Old Testament was predictably unpredictable, breaking human conventions and showing that he can do things that we never thought he could do, and if in the person in the crucifixion of Jesus he did what no one expected, blowing all the categories, then why wouldn't we expect that the Holy Spirit that fills God's church would also be predictably unpredictable? In other words, the Spirit of God as we find him unfolding in the books of Acts is a spirit that breaks convention and operates in ways that Men don't expect and take people by surprise. Let me just give you, I could go page after page after page through the book of Acts and show you this. Let me just grab you a couple. This is, again, is the kind of the third movement. We looked at the Old Testament, Jesus. Now let's look at the book of Acts and show just how the spirit of the living God who indwells the church, how he destroys the wisdom of the wise, and how he frustrates the intelligence of the intelligent. Everything is going great after Pentecost. The Spirit of the God descends. Peter goes out in power. The church is um, swelling at, at enormous rates, 3,000 and 5,000. It seems like nothing can stop this. And all of a sudden, there's this kind of anomaly in chapter 5 that comes out of the blue, in which we find a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who lie to God about a gift that they were going to give. They sold a piece of land, and out of that land they were going to, they promised or vowed to give a certain amount of proceeds to the work of God. However, they held some back, and then they lied about it. And Peter calls them on the carpet, and he says in verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? In other words, you haven't just lied to men. You've lied to him who indwells the church, and have kept for yourself some of the money you, uh, you received for the land. And at that, Ananias falls down dead, deader than the doornail. And it's not Peter that killed him. The sense is he lied to the Spirit, and the Spirit of God broke out in judgment on this man for lying to him. And then his wife is summoned. His wife comes in. She too falls down dead. Two people in the church, if you will, executed by the judgment of God. And this is something that's outside the, the The expectation of the church because they are utterly horrified in response. Verse 11 says that great fear, great fear is like almost a sense of panic, sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. That's not something you see in church every day. Imagine yourself in the congregation and thinking to yourself, I just heard something terrible. Ananias and Sapphira, you remember the ones that used to sit on the left, the front two rows? We used to be in small group with them. Well, apparently they, they weren't honest with the Lord. And like, 
The Lord took their lives. The Holy Spirit took their lives. You'd be thinking, wait a second, I thought church was a safe place. Does the Spirit of the living God do that? To which I think the response would have to be, yes, he can and has done that. Because the Spirit of the living God that indwells the church is a holy spirit, is the almighty Spirit of God. He can do that. And, and it's outside the expectation of, of at least it seems, by the response of this particular church probably woke them up to the reality that, you know what? Man, we shouldn't really mess around. The Spirit of the living God is a serious spirit. He takes it seriously. He can. He can take life. Or let's move to chapter 8. A spirit in a work of providence. He brings a wave of persecution on the church. Again, an unexpected wave if you would have been living at the time. And out of that wave in chapter 8, we find that the people... The Christians in Jerusalem are, are forced out, almost a forced out mission. Because, again, he's trying, he is moving the church out to bring the word of Christ out. And in the process of them going out, a young preacher by the name of Philip goes into the area of Samaria, the town of Samaria, and he preaches. And the spirit breaks forth on the, on the Samarian people, and, and we don't know how many, it just says a lot of people come to faith. Now, these are Samarians. Know anything about the Sumerians and their relationship with the Jews? They were considered compromised ethnically, compromised religiously. Jesus in John chapter 4 says that they worship a God they don't know. In other words, he's saying, you have a false religion, a false way of relating to the Lord. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And yet, nevertheless, all of a sudden, the Spirit of the living God breaks out a church there. It'd be analogous to hearing reports that, Mormons by the drove in Salt Lake City are bowing the knee to the real Jesus, not, not to the Mormon Jesus, which, pardon the frankness, is just the pagan Jesus dressed up in a thin Christian garb. That's just what he is. But to hear the spirits moving in that kind of a way of a spiritually compromised religion, but that's what he's doing, unexpected. So they have to send Peter and John to verify that it's actually happening. Can't believe it. Or in the next chapter, chapter 9 is equally as astounding. Who would have ever thought? I mean, the great enemy of the church, a man who had a rage against the church, an impassioned Jew who's committed to Judaism, a man by the name of Saul, who's willing to imprison and kill people. That's how much he hates Jesus, hates the cross, hates the church. And in another act of divine irony, God converts the persecutor and turns him into a preacher. And you look at the, the response of the church in chapter 9. They are completely flabbergasted. They are asking the question, hearing him preach with power. Persecutor turned preacher. Man who is against Jesus, converted to Jesus. They're responding in verse 21 saying, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name that is the name of Jesus? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet the same Saul, who is Paul the Apostle, would later become Paul the Apostle. Just Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Who would have ever expected it? People must have been thinking, did you hear? Like, that's entirely impossible. In fact, when he comes back to Jerusalem, the people won't hang out with him because they don't believe it. 
I sometimes wonder if the family of Stephen, who Paul personally saw to his execution, I wonder if the family who still felt the sting of this loss of their brother or their friend Stephen just thought, oh my goodness. Paul should have been crushed by Jesus, but he was converted by Jesus. Again, Spirit of God breaking boxes, expectations. You would expect God to execute Paul, not Ananias and Sapphira. But he doesn't. He converts him. But there's still more. You enter the next chapter, and there's an amazing box-breaking moment. And the Spirit of God gives the Apostle Peter a vision. And the vision is essentially this. He says, or the vision is, that he sees all these animals, and amongst the animals are unclean animals, like lizards and so forth, things that Jews would not eat. And he sees a white sheet coming down, sign of purity. And a voice says to him, rise up and eat. And Peter says, I I can't. I'm a Jew. I have biblical categories that I have to maintain. Dietary categories that are part of the Old Covenant that I must maintain. To which the voice says, don't call what is clean. I have cleaned unclean. And then out of that vision, he says, I want you to head up north because you're going to meet a man, a Gentile. Someone who's not a Jew and someone considered unclean. And so Peter listens to the voice of the Spirit and he goes up north, meets a man named Cornelius. And of course, you know the story. And he starts telling about Jesus to this to this Gentile, non-Jewish man and his family gathered in the house. And before he finishes his little sermon, the Spirit breaks forth on these people that are filled with the Spirit and they start speaking in foreign tongues. Never been done before. It breaks the Hebrew convention of requiring circumcision before you can be part of the people of God. But the Spirit has come upon them, uncircumcised Gentiles. What's going on? It's such a box-breaking moment. In chapter 11, Peter gets called on the carpet by people back in Jerusalem. And they start accusing him. They say in verse 2, he said, they say, You went down into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter, all he can do is he says, well, and I'm summarizing a whole chapter here, Well, the Spirit did it. And it becomes such an issue, this Spirit breaking down the boxes of these old covenant lines that that they have to have a council in chapter 15 gathering together the entire church saying, this doesn't make sense to us. Well, no, I, I guess it wouldn't. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? From old Christ and Spirit breaking down these walls as well. Because he's not going to be confined by human convention or even the narrow lines of the old covenant. He's breaking them forcefully or by doctrines made by men, humanistic theologies. I also think it's fascinating in chapter 12 that within a few verses of each other, the Spirit allows one apostle to die and miraculously delivers a different one, Peter. James, the brother of John, dies at Herod's hand, but Peter is miraculously and powerfully delivered. The Spirit takes one home, and delivers one. That in, I'm sure in the taking of one home, it caused the mission to go forward in this direction, and in, in delivering Peter, caused the mission to go forward in that direction. And the Spirit's not working in the same way in each person's life. He is directing and causing and taking some home and delivering others. It's kind of unpredictable. 
I wish I could, you know, know, hey, Lord's not going to take me. He's going to deliver me. But some he does and some he doesn't. Of course, you can continue on through the book of Acts. You get to the, the very end. And I love the story of Paul's voyage on a boat to Rome. Chapter 27 and 28 of Acts. I'm just going to kind of rehearse the story here. But Paul has an intended audience with Caesar. He has appealed to Caesar, and so he gets on this boat shackled in chains, the very end of the story of Acts, and they set sail for Rome. But the Spirit of the living God causes a divine interruption in the plan. God sends a storm that blows them way off course. That storm causes the ship to wreck on an island called Malta, in which Paul had a, had a central function in maintaining the lives of everybody on the ship because he was able to attest to the power of God and say, listen, if you listen to me, God has talked to me, and everyone will be saved if you trust what I say. Everybody listens to Paul. They stay on the ship, and they are delivered. A little detour in their plans onto the beaches of Malta. And Paul, in an act of service, goes and gathers firewood, the text tells us. And as a result, a little poisonous asp comes out and bites him. If I was Paul, I would thinking at that point, it's like, <laughs> I was headed to Rome, and you sent a storm. You wrecked us on the island for a purpose. I went and gathered wood, and now I got a snake bite. What in the world? Are you doing? And yet the island people see that Paul does not die, and they hail him as a god, and I have no doubt that Paul was able to attest because of this detour. Let's call it a spirit-driven detour, Rome via Malta, to tell people about what God has done in Christ. This goes to show, you know, you may have plans, but God and the Spirit of the living God has a way of interrupting them and causing radical detours in your course and in your journey. I see in the unfolding of the book of Acts, I see a spirit who is very much in charge. I see a a sovereign spirit of the living God who just as God worked in the Old Testament and then Jesus is now working in the church, oftentimes in unpredictable ways, I see the spirit of living God who cannot be confined, cannot be caged by human conception. I see a sovereign spirit who acts in his own freedom and sometimes does things that we would never expect. Because in the end, he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. That's the heart, or should I say that is a perspective on the way in which God works in the world in which we live. Namely, I will, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Intelligence, the intelligence I will frustrate. I will do all that I please. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. I do not live by your rules. The Spirit does not live by the rules of men. Now, I believe that truth that the spirit of the living God that indwells the church is not confined, caged by human convention, logic, or philosophy. 
I believe that that has tremendous relevance for us. Theologically and personally. On a theological level, let me say this. A little on the controversial side. In light of what we've just seen, Old Testament Jesus in Acts, I believe we must be extremely careful in embracing theological constructs that would seek to determine what the Spirit does and does not do. I'm going to unpack that in a moment, explain what I mean, but let me say it again first. We must be extremely careful about embracing a theological construction that would seek to determine what the Spirit of the living God in the church does and does not do. A theological construct is basically a conclusion about God that's built on, built on human argumentation. It may presumably begin with Scripture, but then through logic and philosophy and arguments, you arrive at a conclusion. It's a theological conclusion, not necessarily based on an explicit statement in Scripture. The Trinity, the idea of the Trinity, is a theological construct, but it is a good one because it adequately reflects the fullness of biblical revelation, namely that God is one, hero Israel, our God is one. Nevertheless, we find him existing in three distinct but eternal people. That is a construct. The early church fathers, they understood reason from Scripture and came up with the Trinity. That was a good construct. But there are other constructs which I think can be tremendously dangerous especially a construct that would seek to determine what the Spirit does not do in the church today. The reason I believe that's dangerous, I believe that in my heart of hearts, I believe that's dangerous, because it's essentially the same kind of attitude that the first century Jews had towards Jesus. They had the biblical prophecies. On the basis of those biblical prophecies, they formed conclusions as to what Jesus, or excuse me, what the Messiah could be. And those hardened categories of thought that they arrived at precluded someone who looked like Jesus. Especially one who would die on a cross. They simply had a theological construct, an extrapolation from Scripture, not necessarily Scripture itself, which caused them to reject him. Now, I recognize they rejected him because of the hardness of their hearts and because they had jealousy. But nevertheless, they had elevated these constructs to a place where it precluded the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And I think people do the same thing with the Spirit of the living God today. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Primarily when it comes to the fact, or should I, let me just stop back up. What I'm speaking of is that there are certain circles which will say today that the Spirit of the living God, the Almighty Spirit, no longer does works of power, miracles, is no longer, he no longer sovereignly distributes whichever spiritual gifts he wishes. And that belief is a conclusion is a construct not based on any one singular explicit statement in Scripture. So that this 
if there are works of power today, if they, if you hold to this position, then you would preclude it from being authentic. It would be fraudulent. It would be fake. And Lord knows there is a lot of fake miracle works of power out there. Just turn on your television. You can see it. But the position precludes any works of power, which may indeed be authentic. So if the Spirit of living God decides, as He has a sovereign right to do, to raise somebody from the dead or heal somebody from a chronic terminal sickness, then by all means He can do it. And any theological construct that would say He does not do that to me is dangerous. Not to mention, from one perspective, seemingly arrogant. I don't have time to break down that particular position. Um, but I will say, we will do it later. Not, It'll be in the fall. But you're thinking, well, I, let me back up and just say that I believe that position rests on flimsy interpretation and is largely motivated, at least in some cases, in the circles that I am in touch with by fear. Printed some of these. This is untitled. Uh, Does the Bible teach that certain spiritual gifts have ceased? And it's the best I can do to argue out the position biblically. And there's a cop, 30 or so copies on the back. I'd encourage you to read it because um, I don't have time to go over it. But it seems to me there's a lot of fear out there that, well, if you open yourself up, and I've had people tell me this, guys that I knew from seminary, saying, Dan, if you acknowledge the fact that the Spirit can and does do those things, then you're on the edge of the, uh, the abyss of charismania. And out of fear of the abuse, a lot of people withdraw and say, no, nah, I'll stay in my comfortable little box. Might be comfortable. God, I meet of Scripture kind of breaks those down. And whenever have we rejected something because people have abused it? I don't mean to be crass, but people abuse sex all the time. doesn't mean people shouldn't have it. People abuse marriage all the time. doesn't mean people shouldn't be married. People abuse food all the time. doesn't mean they should be, we shouldn't eat. Fear of abuse shouldn't keep us from acknowledging that the Spirit of God can and may do whatever He wishes. Now let me now kind of come to the other side and say this. Comfort those of you who might feel a bit like, well, where does this go, Dan? Well, let me just say that I don't ever believe that the Spirit will contravene or contradict what he has already, already revealed about himself and God in the Scriptures. I mean, this is his book, and this is what expresses who he is. He's never going to lie. He's never going to move in a direction contrary to the Scripture. Nor is he ever going to lead or move a person contrary to the will of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. So if someone comes up to me and says, Dan, I think that the Spirit of God is leading me away from the Christian church to embrace the Baha'i faith. I will say, point blank, that's definitely not the Spirit of God talking to you. That's a different spirit from down low that's speaking to you. The Spirit of living God always moves and works in the direction of Jesus. And that is the litmus test for me as to whether or not a work of power is 
deceitful or whether it is it is true. If it leads away from Christ, then beware. Because the end times will be filled with that kind of stuff. But if it leads to Christ and exalts Christ and it is authentic, why not embrace it? Why be afraid of it? You don't need to preclude it because of a construction. Simply saying, brothers and sisters, that I believe that I believe that God, Holy Spirit, is a spirit that is cannot be contained or caged by our our conventions, our thoughts. And we've got to be very careful, very careful about embracing theological constructs that would seek to determine what the Spirit does not do. I think that's dangerous. But I also think that the truth that the Spirit is, in a manner of speaking, predictably unpredictable. I think it calls for each of us personally to just remain humbly flexible and surrender to the fact that the Spirit does move and guide things, that He is in charge and may bring things into our lives that are unexpected, unpredictable, some painful, some wonderful. Sometimes the Spirit of God is going to take you up on the mountains of spiritual euphoria, and sometimes down into the valleys of pain, death, disappointment, discouragement, and depression, so that He can show you that He is still there, still with you and will sustain you. I can't believe from what I know about the Apostle Paul that he just didn't think, you know, and he just find his plans were constantly getting changed by the Spirit of God. I want to go to Bithynia and the Spirit says, no, you're going over here. As he gets detoured through Malta, gets bitten by a snake, that couldn't have felt good. But I have a feeling he was like, okay, I'm here. You brought me here. I'm going to do your work here because you're in charge, not me. It should be a humble flexibility to recognize that God is at work and God is moving. The economic collapse we're experiencing, let's not pretend that that's not a work of God. I think, no, I believe, the spirit of the living God is once again bringing the church underneath his lordship and his power, and he is starting to purge us of our greed, our consumerism, and our idolatry. He's at work. Don't make no mistake about it. Some will leave the church and others will find God, the Spirit, refining, purging, and renewing their faith. And that's what we're praying for. The Spirit is moving in the church. Sometimes it's in unexpected ways like what we're going through. It also, for me personally, creates a sense of awe and worship. And I finish with this, to know that God does not live by man's clock. God is not subject to our our boxes. He calls us humbly to relate to Him, to worship Him, to acknowledge Him, and to live in the live in the light that He is Almighty God, and we're but merely, merely humans. And He will, if we trust in Him, He will lead, guide, and faithfully bring us home, despite the fact that oftentimes he works unpredictably. It's an amazing thought. God says, I will do all that I please. I will do all that I please. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. I will destroy the verse. verse. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligence. I will frustrate. Lord God Almighty, we come 
once again reminded of your greatness and your power and the fact that even now you're moving amongst your people doing things that may not be pleasurable and yet in the long term they will intensify our pleasure in you and knowing that you care for us, that you're trustworthy and faithful, that you do love us through good and difficult times on the mountains, the euphoric mountains of spiritual delight and down in the valleys of the shadow of death. Lord, help us to trust, help us to surrender to who you are as our all almighty, awesome God. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.